This is Football Social Daily, keeping you up to date with the latest from the English top flight. This is Football Social Daily, the Premier League podcast packed full of news views every single day of the top flight season. And it could be a long season for reigning champions Liverpool as their already stricken defence has taken another blow. This time it's Joe Gomez who joins Van Dijk, Alexander-Arnold and Fabinho on the sidelines. The centre-back allegedly picking up a serious knee injury during England training yesterday. Can Liverpool stay tight at the back despite their threadbare back line or will things begin to unravel for Jurgen Klopp's side? Plus, Manchester United's Mason Greenwood has been through the mill on a personal level the last few months. But are the English press giving him an unfair ride. We'll discuss whether the pressures of being a young footballer are intensified by the hungry UK media. Also, we'll talk about Scotland and their chance to qualify for a tournament for the first time this century. And Burnley are under the spotlights in floodlight focus. I'm Niall. Alongside me today, we've got Marley Anderson. All right there, Marley. I'm just, hello, by the way. I'm just thinking of the, the topics we've got coming up today. We've got Scotland and Burnley, and I hope we don't lose our followers. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, JP, but got to get my shots in early. And that was the outraged cry of uh, John Paul Hughes, who's also joining us on the podcast. I wouldn't stand for that, JP, if I was you. Mate, I don't mind. It's okay. I'm already drunk, as is most of Scotland, just preparing <laughs> ourselves for the inevitable disappointment of this evening. Um, it softens the blow. Honestly, Glasgow is keeping uh, the Buckfast wine <laughs> distillery down in Devon in business, I think, um, <laughs> particularly after today. Yeah. We don't often talk about Scotland on the podcast, um, and it's great to see them doing well again, although from an English perspective, that's quite difficult to say sometimes. Um, but I think it would be great to see them back at another major tournament. We'll talk about that a little bit later on in the show. But the first place we're going to start is with Liverpool and the news that came out yesterday from the England training camp, Marley, was that Joe Gomez has injured himself quite badly in yesterday morning's training session. It looks like it could be a knee injury. We don't know any further information just yet as we're recording the podcast, but it certainly looks like it could be a significant spell on the sidelines, much like Virgil van Dijk has had a knee ligament injury sustained in that Merseyside derby from the Pickford tackle. This one seems innocuous from Gomez's perspective, but it does look like a twisted knee could see him out for a while. That spells problems for Jurgen Klopp at the back, who's already got Alexander-Arnold out with a calf injury. He's going to miss three or four games. Fabinho is also on the sidelines and he's slotted in at centre-back. Surely concerns for Jurgen Klopp. Yeah, massively. Um, I'm thinking, you know, you you can kind of sum it up in the way that when your only fit centre-back is a um, injury-prone Joel Matip, you, you bang in trouble. Because he goes down with about 35 injuries a season. He, Twist, twist his knee getting out of bed and you know sprains his ankle going for a wee he, he does all sorts so you're just you're just waiting for him to drop out now um and if you look at uh liverpool squad i think they're probably looking at playing you know fabinho and um and matip at center back for the for the upcoming weeks and and maybe with nico williams at, coming in at right back and they've still got Still got players, but it's a, it's a far cry from from Gomez and Van Dijk and Trent Alexander-Arnold because they're such a big way of, of of how Liverpool play, both offensively and and defensively because of the um, you know the crossing and the attacking purpose that that Trent brings you at right back. Um, but Gomez is a is a big injury injury um, to deal with. I think uh, him and him and Van Dijk had struck up a, a very good partnership, and we've seen last season Gomez went off the boil a bit. Um, and he had a bit of a bit of a dodgy spell, but when he got back to playing with Van Dijk every week, he, he regained his form, and it, it it sort of that was the influence that Van Dijk had. And all of a sudden, now Liverpool have got none of them, and it's a case of of whether they can adapt to the situation now. Because it's I think any team would struggle without the first two centre backs um, mm. in terms of uh, priority, and um, yeah, it's, it's it's time to see what they what they're made of because. It's uh, it's time to maybe chuck a, chuck a kid in and see if he can uh, sink or swim with the likes of, um, is it Phillips the the centre back the young lad so yeah yeah see trying to sink or swim for him maybe this one obviously um, a bit of bad luck and misfortune but what we always say JP about the best teams and the the champion teams so to speak is that through adversity mm. they can still perform <laughs> now we've seen even since the Van Dyke injury I don't think Liverpool have lost a game since then. Uh, since Van Dijk got ruled out. So obviously this is another huge blow for them. But do you think that they still will be able to deal with the fact that their defence is pretty much barren at this moment in time? 
Um, if they can't, then they should. Uh, I think it's uh, you make a good point that since Van Dyke went out and everyone was foretelling the end of the world, uh, they haven't lost. Um, they've, they've uh, I think five wins, two draws, maybe something like that that, that they've, they've gone through. Um, you know, a club with lesser resources, you might have a bit more sympathy for <laughs> uh, than, <laughs> than Liverpool. But I think it's the sign of, of how good a squad of players they are that they can they can suffer these injuries they have so far, including Van Dyke and Fabinho. And uh, and still bounce back from that and 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 get through. Really, for me, if, if Liverpool, all they have to do through this period, while Gomez is injured and 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 uh, and Van what have you, is really just stay in touch. You know, you, you you can't win the league this early in the season. Still very early. We're still in the first quarter, really. Um, and uh, there's that old. You know, it's about adapting, isn't it? That that that's what makes champions. Champions um, overcome adversity better than others. Um, it's easy. Uh, to play or not easy but certainly it's expected that you can play well when you have all your first team players fit and everyone's in good form and they're all getting along but but true champions overcome adversity better than others and uh, and that'll be a sign of, of what Liverpool are made of um, I genuinely think they can do it I think it will require them to maybe change the way they line up there'll be a few players maybe out of position lots of people have talked about Milner coming back in and, and, and showing his adaptability at right back but if you think back even to the, the, the great Liverpool teams of the 80s mm. I always remember they used to talk about how they defended from the front with Ian Rush um, it was the hardest working defender on the pitch they would say in the Liverpool team because of the pressure they would put on, on, on defenders and where that would come from so I think uh, the whole Liverpool squad whatever the starting eleven is have that responsibility to more, and I think players can do this: is keep the ball uh, away from the areas that they're probably most vulnerable. And I think we've yeah. got them in them to do that. That's what I was going to say, JP. It, it kind of popped into my head as you were speaking there that it reminds me of when Jurgen Klopp kind of first came to the club about five or so years ago, where the defence was pretty poor back then. Not so much due to injury, but just to, due to the quality of player wasn't up to the standard that he would have wanted. Mm-hmm. And it felt like they would win every game 4-3 because such was the quality of their attacking players. They were able to score more goals at the other end despite the amount they conceded themselves. Mm-hmm. And I feel that they've still got that quality about them, particularly now with the likes of Jota, who's been scoring some good goals for them and he looks in form and Mane and Salah and Firmino I mean that's a fearsome forward line that they've got do you think that they can sort of still use that you know in terms of being able to score more than the opposition despite what happens up the other end definitely absolutely and and, and they, they generally tend to like City they tend to dominate possession and they're, they're more often than not on the front foot and uh, they, they all cliche that the best form of defence is attack so uh, Go and smash them. Uh, win every game 5-4 and it'll be good for everybody else. All those neutrals to sit and watch. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. To be honest, Marley, it's it's difficult to, to kind of slag off any particular schedule in terms of why Joe Gomez has got the injury. He would have had to got, have gone to the England camp anyway because he was selected for the two competitive fixtures. I know that there's a a friendly against the Republic of Ireland, which I find baffling. I don't see why England are playing friendlies. But this is just one of those where it's bad luck. We can understand the frustration around the Pickford challenge because it was a poor tackle and he should have been retrospectively punished. But this is just poor luck for Liverpool, is it not? Yeah. Um, you know, you, it's sort of natural in this situation to look for something to blame and someone to blame. And the the thing to blame is right there for Liverpool fans. And, you know, oh, well, if you'd never gone to England and blah, blah, blah. Uh, if they hadn't played this pointless friendly, what's the point in calling him up and, and making him train? Well, he would have been training at Liverpool anyway. And he has a history of knee injuries. Um, he's come back from, from a couple of, um, of ligament um, damages earlier in his career that, that could have really um, had a massive effect. It's it ended people's careers before they've even started in the past. Um, those kind of problems. And he's come back from them. So... You know, once once your knee goes once, it 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 can always go again. It could go any time. It could go when you're walking the dog or when you, you know, you're making a last ditch tackle in a Champions League quarter final or something like that. It's it's just it's just hard luck, and it's you know the way it's played out with it happening in England training is obviously going to cause a lot of anger um, from fans who who can point to the the schedule and have another pop at international football, but. It's just one of them things. You, you 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 can't help it. It's a it's a, apparently it's a, it was a freak thing. There was no one around him when he was, um, when he went down with this injury. I think he was just walking along, or maybe doing a light jog or something like that, and he just went down with it. 
Um, so it's it's hard to justify any anger towards England because this could have happened at any time, I think. Um, and now for Liverpool, you've you've got to get on with it and show why you're the best team in the country. And and you know, I think we had when we had the Liverpool guy on on Floodlight Focus a few weeks ago, he said that you know if if Liverpool can do something you know special without Van Dijk. You know, it, it sends out a, a massive sort of body blow to the rest of the Premier League that they can win without the best defenders. Um, mm. And it, it's similar with Gomez. If you can, if you don't have Van Dijk for the entire season and you go without Gomez for for twelve weeks or something like that, and you still win most of your games like they have been without Van Dijk um, in the previous five or six weeks, then you know it's it's a massive psychological blow for for everybody else who thinks you can get close to them when they haven't got the best players if they go and carry on winning and you know rolling out these these um victories without some of the best players it's it's massive for them yeah definitely i mean you've spoken about potential replacements already marley uh, nathaniel phillips and uh, williams as well but i was thinking jp that someone experienced might be crucial in there and although fabinho is kind of a midfielder who's slotted into centre-back in recent times he's also injured so James Milner I mean he seems to have played everywhere on the pitch not just for Liverpool but for for every club he's been at he's been able to perform in different positions I was thinking that maybe although it could be a risk certainly some experience just to kind of settle things down at the back might be a shout yeah I I, I completely agree Um, and I I think that um, you know, the, the more experienced that players become. I, I, I remember I, I used to play play with with, with, with Dundee United. I, I spent uh, a few years there um, back in the uh, back in the early nineties, giving away my age. And I always remember. <laughs> um, <clears throat> you guys may or may not remember. You might be too young. Uh, a Dundee United in Scotland defender called Morris Malpass. Yes, um, yeah, he used to manage Swindon Town. I remember. Him yes, as well. Mm. <laughs> and. Uh, and, and and you know that that Dundee United team, a legend, um, obviously Duncan Ferguson, Ferguson, all that, all that at the time, and all kind of moving on. But you had guys like you know Richard Goff had just left. You had um, players like David Neri, Paul Sturrock, Morris Malpass, lots and lots of Scotland internationals, lots of Scotland Hall of Famers. But something that always mm. sticks in my mind was was being told uh, to watch Morris Malpass as a left back on the pitch only because. Um, he was so experienced and he was so good. They would say he was a defender who never had to make a tackle. Um, because he would simply move opponents into positions where they would be condensed, they would be pressed, and they would eventually have to move backwards all the time. Um, and what it was all about was, he, he, you know, they would always talk about him leaving the pitch without his, his, his strip getting dirty. I think with players like Milner uh, and, and, and the experience that you talk about bringing in there, it's not about them being tall and being able to go in and win headers and last-ditch sliding tackles. It's about the organisation on the pitch and moving the opposition into areas that they can't hurt you. And I think uh, people like James Milner, whatever position you can put him in in the football pitch is invaluable and be able to do things like that for you. Yeah, definitely. Well, we wish Joe Gomez a speedy recovery from injury. Never nice to see anyone go down injured at any stage of the season, particularly if it is serious. And as Marley rightly pointed out earlier on, he does have a history of bad injuries. And there were a few whisperings that this could be a serious career damaging knock that he's picked up so hopefully that isn't the case and we see Joe Gomez back out there on a football pitch sooner rather than later problems for Liverpool but alleged problems at Manchester United for their striker Mason Greenwood at least that's what the press want you to believe there's been a lot of media scrutiny on the young striker in recent times Marley and he's had a tough time of it the last couple of months he made a mistake in the England squad that went out to Iceland by breaking coronavirus protocol by inviting a couple of models back to the hotel. Him and Phil Foden got in trouble for that. And then more recently, a friend of his, a Manchester City Academy player called Jeremy Whiston, sadly passed away. And that's affected Greenwood quite heavily as well. So take all that into account, the fact that the lad's made a high profile mistake. A friend of his has taken his own life. And now he's seeing articles on social media from newspapers about his attitude problems and about him being late and his timekeeping and whether he's able to kind of keep his behaviour in check. That's a that's a damaging blow to someone who, although they are a professional footballer, they're still at a vulnerable age. You know, they're not. Mason Greenwood's only just turned eighteen. I mean, the fragility there mentally is obviously going to be a problem for him um, if these articles keep coming. So I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on that because it's starting to become increasingly evident that Greenwood's becoming a target for the press. Well, the most depressing thing about this whole thing is we could you could almost see it coming, couldn't you? Like, it's not a surprise that, that papers, they almost like pick a target and go after them. And it's a lot of the time completely unjustified, but 
<clears throat> excuse me, with um with Greenwood making that mistake in in Iceland um, alongside Phil Foden, I think that kind of marked his card, and the the tabloids have went right. We're going for him, and it's just like it's the the British culture of of every time we get something good, we have to try and sort of tear it down, and we've got the media going for him, um, and saying oh you know there'll be things out there like oh he's he's bought a uh, fancy car he's only 18 what does he need that for and and the run of the mill stuff like that and then this the stuff that we're seeing um in the media now with with you know his attitude in training and things like that you know there could be there could be an element of truth in it however does it need to be um plastered all over the back pages of, a, of an 18 year old kid like the he, you know he could be a very important player in the future of, of English football He's got the potential to go to the very top of the game, and from from the you know the minute he turns eighteen, he's got to deal with this media scrutiny that's completely unjustified. And you know everyone talks about mental health in this day and age, and you know the the tabloids are the first to run things like oh you know we need to you know get Britain talking, talk to your mates, you know ask if your mates mm-hmm. are okay and stuff. But also we're going to sell you know three million copies of our newspaper. About um, with something like you know oh, Greenwood's got a bad attitude in training and ignoring the fact that one of his friends has just committed suicide at the age of seventeen or eighteen or something like that. So I'm always someone who looks. You've got to look into the, the reasons why people do things um, and why they might be acting a certain way. You can't just take it on face value. And Greenwood, you know, is is rose to fame like rapidly, probably even quicker than Marcus Rashford did. Um, back in 2016 and that is like a meteoric rise and you d- you don't have the mental um, strength a lot of the time uh, to-, to deal with the increased scrutiny at the age of 18 like you are you- you're a baby at 18 you've especially when you've come through an academy mm. you've lived in a kind of bubble where no one really you know you- you've been in an academy for what 10 years and all of a sudden you you're playing in the first team you got the number 11 shirt at man united and you're in the england squad like that's you know his his sort of world has moved so quickly the only thing that's kept it's like centrifugal force has kept him in the middle because it's moved so quickly that when it slows down you kind of hit the edge and you 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 start to struggle a little bit mm. um and this is probably what we're seeing with greenwood now you know his form on the pitch has dropped off a little bit, but he's got a lot going on in his life. He's he's probably trying to, you know, make sense of what's happened in the last couple of years, and you know, to have, mm. you know, the the media just going, oh well, you know, he's got a bad attitude in training. Probably thirty percent of the bloody Premier League probably has, but you don't talk to them because most of them are foreign and it doesn't attract the clicks that you um, that you want. But as soon as the new young English kid comes along, he becomes public enemy number one. It's exactly the same thing that happened to Raheem Sterling and that was snuffed out after a while. It took a couple of years for people to really get on that bandwagon and say, hang on a sec, what you're being is inappropriate. You're being unacceptable. You're targeting this young player who's had a tough time of it. And like you say, Marley, you're using it to generate clicks and sell copies of newspapers. And, you know, I know people need to do what they've got to do to make money, but at the expense of someone else, particularly in a time when we're talking about mental health, as you mentioned, uh, more more than ever, uh, I think that's pretty shocking. To be fair, you think you think as well the um, you know the the state of newspapers these days they are declining in sales. They're going extinct at an mm. incredible rate, and it th- you know printing nice stories about how how everything's fine simply doesn't sell. So they are trying to you know. Um, you know, bad news is good news for tabloids, and negative news is 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 something that can sell papers and attract clicks mm. and all the rest of it. And that's probably where it comes from. I mean, it's a sad state of affairs that it's yeah. come to that, to be honest. But you know, that doesn't justify going after somebody like this and and trying to um, character defamation like this. It's it's far far too uh, too unjust for me. Just building on what you said there, Marley. Um... Interestingly, uh, I commentate on a on a fair amount of under 18s games, particularly Manchester United games. I should point out, where players under the age of 16, and often you see 15 and 14 year olds that are good enough make the step up to play in the academy at under 18 level. You're not actually allowed to say their first names in commentary due to data protection. So 
as soon as they get over that 16 threshold and they turn 16, 17, 18, it's then fair game, JP, because they're considered adults. You're still very young and you're still very vulnerable. So do you think that there should maybe be protocols put in place around the ability or the necessity to report on young players and um, whether there should be limits on that? It, it really depends if you care or not. And, and, and it's pretty obvious that uh, both the government and the, um, you know, it's easy to say in media, but we, we are primarily talking tabloid press, don't. They don't care. The mm. only thing they care about, mm. uh, as, as, as Mali uh, originally said, was um, selling uh, their newspapers and generating clickbait for advertising revenue um, so, mm. that, uh, so that they can drive more money. Because what, what angers me the most about this is they know what it does. They know where this leads. This isn't the, the first time this has happened. Um, you know, we, we could all rhyme off numerous occasions they've done this to players from Paul Gascoigne and all sorts of others as well. They know where this mm -hmm. leads and they continue to do it time and time and time and time again. Um, so unless there is a movement and a groundswell by, by supporters to try and protect uh, these players, because it, it, as you say, you know, people, t people talk about oh, the money they earn and so what? All the more reason, actually, that they require a bit more mental health protection. Because what ordinary, you know, who among us has any idea what it's like to be that young? Um, you're, 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 you know, think about the stupid decisions you make <laughs> as, oh, yeah. as a teenager and the things that you do. I dread to think if I was 18, what I'd be doing if I had that money. Honestly. Oh, mate, honestly, it's a nonsense. So all the more reason that, that these uh, young men and young sports people are propelled into this stratosphere, they aren't even fully formed human beings. How can they be expected to make rational, logical, sensible decisions? And a lot of it is driven, uh, and I don't care what anyone says, by jealousy, um, by envy, um, and, oh, well, that's not what I would have done. Well, you don't know what you'd have done because you're not them and you've never had to live the life that they have. So I, I, I'm appalled by it. I think it's disgusting. And I also think that there's another, that there's another side to this. Um, uh, you know, you talk. You know, I know that Walcott was 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 hounded for a period. We saw it happen with Raheem Sterling. We're now seeing it happen with uh, with Mason Greenwood. Um, why are Foden and Maguire and the likes not subject to the same level of criticism and scrutiny? I think we probably know the reason yeah. for that. Um, yeah. And uh, and I think also, you know, especially when you talk you talk about younger people and bringing in legislation around that. I also think that. Um, there's a really interesting uh, debate to have around that in, in social media too because there's a wider endemic societal problem here where, um, uh, you know, there's an old phrase that opinions are like assholes, everybody has one. Um, well, now every asshole gets to express their opinion uh, as if it's fact via social media platforms and everybody has access to it with, you know, football stadium-sized audiences to take that on and, and, and contribute to it. And this, this culture that we have now as well of, you know, of, of a divisive society, be that Brexit, be it politics, be it football rivalries, all the rest that sits inside that, makes people hunker down in these situations and they believe that their opinion is the only one that matters and they're always right. And it's got a massively negative effect on, on these young men and, and I think it's wildly unfair and they should be ashamed of themselves, to be perfectly honest. Imagine how intimidating it must be and how sinister it must be to have someone camping outside your house, ready to take photos mm -hmm. of you when you leave at the age of mm -hmm. 17 or 18. No one at that age should be subjected to having someone hanging on their every movement, on their every word. It's, it's effective stalking is what it is. I'll tell you what, you have to be a, a certain breed of person to be someone like a, a paparazzi, you know what I mean? To, to camp outside someone else, someone's house and, and wait to take a picture that you can then go and sell is a, a career that has always baffled me. And, and you, see, you see a few documentaries of people with them. They're all like fat middle-aged blokes and it's like... If you didn't have a camera, you'd be arrested. You are, it's it's too far. Like, the, the things they do, you know, camping out in bushes, you know, staying out as if they're a flipping MI5 um, spy or something like that. It's an absolute joke, the lengths they go to 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 get, you know, take a picture and sell it to the sun for 200 quid or whatever it is. It's a bizarre, bizarre profession. Yeah, I mean, I should point out that we don't know of any evidence that someone's camping outside Mason Greenwood's house with a camera. I wouldn't be surprised, but I just have to make that clear. Um, definitely, I, th I think that was a really healthy debate and certainly one that needs to be had, certainly in pubs and in newsrooms up and down the country as well, as we do need to protect these young people, particularly young men, who, as we know, um, are a higher risk of uh, taking their own lives, as we've seen with the Jeremy Whiston thing. 
Um, and yeah, definitely men are vulnerable, particularly during the month of November where, you know, um, men's mental health is being campaigned for quite strongly. So certainly feel that Mason Greenwood needs to be left alone for, you know, as long as possible, really, because he does have bags of talent. He's one of the only people I've ever seen being able to score a free kick with both feet, which is just absolutely ridiculous in itself. Hopefully the media do get the message and, and leave him alone, but I just find it hard to see how that's going to happen. Hopefully it does. This is Football Social Daily from Sports Social. Afterwards, we'll be talking about Burnley with superfan Leighton Bracegirdle, and also we'll be talking about Scotland, who could qualify for their first major tournament in a long, long time. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. Listen to the latest Premier League news, updates and match reports now. Just ask Open Sport Social. Welcome back to Football Social Daily. I'm Niall. Alongside me on the podcast, we've got Marley Anderson and JP Hughes is here as well. And JP, being our resident Scotsman, might be feeling uh, slightly nervous, anxious or maybe not asked at all. We'll have to gauge his feelings because Scotland, their national side, have a massive game tonight they are able possibly to qualify for their first major tournament since 1998, the World Cup in France. On that occasion, it was 22 years ago. Now they could get to a major tournament if they can beat Serbia in a playoff game tonight. JP, there's been a bit of a disconnect between the Scotland supporters and the national team for a long, long time. It feels like no one's really been that bothered and it's been quite despairing, I guess is the word. That's just from the outside looking in. Is that kind of disconnect starting to be repaired now that the team have actually got on the verge of achieving something? It's hard to say. Um, there's certainly... Um, you're right in terms of the despondency that, that, that certainly that, that, that carried around the national team for quite some time. Um, uh, you know, perennial underachievers. Uh, it seems to be that if, if, the, you know, if there's a way that we can snatch defeat from the jaws of victory, we will find it. Um, and uh, and this run that we're on at the moment, though, um, eight games unbeaten, first time since 1988, believe it or not, is, uh, is, is, is something unheard <laughs> for a lot of Scotland supporters. So I don't think um, anyone's getting too carried away. We're all still, <laughs> we're, we're, we're quietly optimistic for this evening. But uh, Steve Clark, I, I think that it's been difficult, obviously, because it's, we've had no fans in, in games recently. Um, and ever since Steve Clark came in and, and took over the team, there's been a shift in, I believe, in the mentality of the players. They seem... There's a kind of quiet, hard-work ethic that, that, that runs through the side. They defend first. Um, we seem a lot more pragmatic and a little street-smarter. Uh, I think I don't think that Steve Clark's time working with Josie and, and, and other clubs at like Chelsea and what have you has hurt there. That's definitely um, you, you can mm. see that he's a, he, a street fighter. He knows his way around a yeah. match and how to go over the line. You know. So, so for those who don't really know too much about Steve Clark, obviously if you've been following the Premier League for a number of years, you'll remember he used to be the West Bromwich Albion boss. He was assistant to Jose Mourinho at Chelsea, and I think he went with him to Real Madrid as well, mm -hmm. if I'm not mistaken, mm -hmm. uh, and prob probably Inter Milan as well, if that was the case. So managed some huge, huge football clubs. He is a Scotsman. Um, I think certainly that he has earned the opportunity to manage Scotland. However, we were sort of looking at the Scotland well I was looking at the Scotland results and you know against Kazakhstan around about a year ago <laughs> things were things were looking pretty grim for for Scotland it's fair to say JP so yeah. where did the turning point come do you think you're obviously on this run now of eight games unbeaten with a really good chance of qualification yeah. where do you think that started because obviously Steve Clark wouldn't have settled for that sort of performance against Kazakhstan no absolutely and I think it, I think it kicked off with, with, with him coming and bringing this pragmatic approach that um, that what matters first is to make yourself... It, it, it's quite often been the way that, that Scotland would try and make themselves difficult to beat first and foremost. Um, but Steve Clark has, has, has brought in this, I think, a, a mental toughness um, to play ugly um, when it's required and not really give a shit if people have anything to say about it. You know, mm. um, he has a. I mean, if you ever see him in interviews, there's, I, I would encourage you to YouTube a famous old Scottish comedy character called the Reverend I M Jolly, who was this <laughs> was this real downbeat, um, sort of pessimistic uh, uh, minister who would give these uh, hogmanay addresses. Steve Clark's press conferences are a bit like that. 
Um, so he plays down uh, uh, things all the time. He's a bit like your uh, your kind of money old school teacher that uh, that you never seem able to please. But he definitely seems to have the players. Um, he's not been afraid, which I think is quite interesting to drop. And this hasn't always been the case. And maybe this is part of the shift and his pragmatism and his 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 know how to get a result over the line. For instance, um, there's lots of talk tonight who's going to play at the back for Scotland. Um, traditionally, Liam Cooper, good player, Leeds United captain. Um, the very fact that he played for Leeds United, um, previous Scotland managers would have put him in the starting lineup. It's probably highly unlikely he's going to start tonight. Um, Steve Clark is probably more likely to either maybe look at McKenna or Forrest or one of the, believe it or not, one of the Motherwell uh, players um, who come into that back four because they mm. fit the match and, and the requirements better of the opposition. So I think he's maybe less swayed by the club that a player is attached to than previous Scotland managers. And that's definitely worked to his benefit. Do you think that, you know, qualifying for Euro 2020, if that is to be the case, uh, do you think that there will be expectations going into that tournament? Let's just presume you do qualify, and I hope Scotland do. Do you think there'll be any expectations, or do you think it will just be, we've done it, we've achieved it? Much like Northern Ireland, when they qualified for the Euros in 2016, it was very much, well, we're here now, that's an achievement in itself, we'll see how it goes. Well, I, I don't think there'll be any expectations, um, if, if I'm perfectly honest. It <laughs> feels like a wee bit of a miracle at the moment. But I, I have to say, I, I'm maybe not typical in that. I kind of hate this, uh, oh, jolly losers. Um, aren't the Tartan Army a good laugh to have around? Who cares if we get absolutely hammered? Um, I despise that, 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 that attitude, that mentality. Um, when you're there, I think that you, you, you're there in merit. Um, you need to roll your sleeves up, you need to try and go as far as you possibly can. So there will certainly be expectations on my behalf. And I think that Steve Clark wouldn't wouldn't stand for, for that sort of mentality either. But what you do get is a lot of probably the, the opposite of the English press, um, where you guys um, will, will all too often hype it up to the point it becomes too much for the players. Um, the Scottish press and what have you, I think, will just be relieved that there has, has, has been some tangible progress. If you look at some of the players that Scotland have got in their national side, Marley, a lot of them are Premier League regulars. Yeah, over, over the years, they've always had sort of one standout player, um, at least, you know, who's like a top Premier League player. And I think this year, you know, in the current squad, they've, they've got a few that can certainly handle themselves. You mentioned McGinn, he's a good player. Andy Robertson, you, you could argue, is the best left back in the league. Um, yeah, they're, they're probably... JP's already said Cooper, isn't he? And the goalkeepers are usually pretty good. Stuart Armstrong's yeah. at Southampton. A couple of the Rangers lads, some good players. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's just getting them all sort of in a team. And uh, I think one of Scotland's issues is all the best players are the left backs. You know, Scotland's second best player is probably Kieran Tierney, and he's another left back. So you're ending <laughs> up trying to, you know, England could could uh, could name a team of right backs um, with the amount they've got, and Scotland can uh, can probably do a, a team of left backs. But there is there is talent there. It's just it's just getting the best out of it in such a small period of, of time working with the players. I think. I think the issue is is with Scotland um, up front. I think, you know, they 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 struggle to get uh, you know a regular goal scorer. I think maybe JP will elaborate on this a little bit. I think, you know, McBurney, we all know he's a good player, but he doesn't score a massive amount of goals. Um, he tends to be a bit of a a target man. You can kind of play off, and it's about getting the the support to him. Um, so for Scotland, maybe it's maybe it's one of them where. You, you know, you need to get a few more goals from midfield. You know, James Forrest, John McGinn, uh, Stuart Armstrong, we've mentioned players like that. Can they can they chip in? Because I think people are forgetting Serbia are a pretty handy handy side who they're playing mm. in the playoff tonight. They're, they're no mugs. They've got some good players. So it'll be uh, it'll be quite a test. I think it'll be really nervy tonight and uh, could be a good watch. See who I do really like, JP. Marley talks about strikers and like you say, you can probably elaborate. I like the look of Lawrence Shankland. I know he's not a... Um... I know he's not a Premier League player and we are a Premier League podcast, but certainly he scored an unbelievable amount of goals in the last couple of seasons. I think he's, is he now at Dundee United? And I'm not sure where he yes. was before that, but he scored a ridiculous amount of goals before that. Because um, my club, yep. Portsmouth, are actually, we're actually looking at him and he decided to stay north of the border um, and go to Dundee. I'm just looking now, mm -hmm. Air United it was, where he scored 50 goals in 61 league games. So, you know, is yeah. that the sort of player where this could be kind of a a coming of age moment for him against Serbia. I mean, he's someone obviously who knows where the back of the net is. Um, what do you, what's your take on the forward situation? You certainly hope so. Um, you know, the, the most natural striker in this, in the Scotland setup, uh, the most talented uh, and the most goals 
um, is, is Lee Griffiths, the, the Celtic striker. But Lee has had uh, more than his fair share of problems uh, recently. Um, fitness issues, um, mental health issues, can't really get into the Celtic team at the moment um, for, for, for various reasons. Uh, but every time he seems to step on a football pitch, he scores a goal. Um, the problem is he's, he's not match fit, match fit sorry, at the moment. Um, and the opportunity is there for someone to make themselves a hero. You know, you think back to, to the way that James McFadden, even his time at Mullerwell before he moved to Everton, mm. managed to break through and a, a few revelatory Scotland performances propelled him and he superstarred him. So someone like Lauren Shanklin, he, he, he has the youth. He has the ability. I think they've got that. Uh, they've got that mindset. Um, as I said, that that, that kind of winning mins- mindset and habit now that uh, that Steve Clark has instilled in them. But you run through that forward line: Ollie Burke, Lyndon Dykes, Ryan Fraser at Newcastle, Lee Griffiths at Celtic, Ollie McBurney at Sheffield United, Callum Parson at Cardiff City, Lauren Shankland at Dundee United. Um, you asked, as, as, as Marley said, you're struggling for a natural um, centre forward goal scoring number nine. But uh, what an opportunity for whatever player has chosen to to go in there and, and make themselves a legend. Yeah, definitely. Best of luck to Scotland tonight against Serbia in the playoff game to qualify for Euro 2020. It'll be exciting to see Scotland qualify, particularly as the tournament is being played, or at least it was supposed to be pre-coronavirus, in several different countries around Europe. And I think, JP, am I right in thinking that Edinburgh or Glasgow are one of the host cities for the Euros? Yeah, Hamden, yep. Hamden Park, Hamden Park, yeah. So mm-hmm. a possibility that we could see Scotland fans in their numbers at a home game in the Euros. would be awesome to see that. Best of luck to Scotland tonight. And uh, talking of luck, Burnley will need a big slice of luck if they're going to get themselves out of the mire because they are in trouble in the Premier League right now. We'll be talking to Claret's superfan Leighton after this here on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. the latest Premier League news for your team. Just ask Open Sport Social. Welcome back to Football Social Daily, the only daily Premier League podcast that comes out every single day of the football season. So make sure you hit subscribe and that way you won't miss another episode of the show again. And it's another day on the podcast, which means it's another floodlight focus. And today, the Clarets are the team under the spotlight. Let's head to Turf Moor and discuss the Burnley and discuss Burnley's season so far with Burnley super fan. He travels home, away, Europe, pre-season, anywhere you can think of where Burnley are playing. He'll be there. Uh, obviously not right now because of what's going on, but I'm sure he's missing it big time. Leighton Bracegirdle's here. How are you doing, Leighton? Hey, I'm there. How are you? Yeah, very, very well. How much are you missing watching the Clarets uh, every corner of the world? I'm sure millions of people have said it, but it's just not the same watching on telly, is it? You miss your mates, you miss the atmosphere, miss the pies at Burnley, miss the pies. <laughs> it, is, it is, yeah, it's rubbish. I can't wait to get back there. It's, it's awful, to be honest. How many games have you been to, roughly? Do you know how many games, roughly, you've been to watching Burnley? Whatever. Just in general, yeah. Do you mean do you go to every game of every season, or I suppose there's a few uh, exceptions? Yeah, the last the last kind of ten years, I've pretty much been to all of them. But um, wow, I've been a season ticket holder since I was uh, like was in the nineties, like ninety one, I think was my first season. So, but I, I've missed, I've missed, I've not, I've travelled Australia and I've been to uni and stuff. So I did miss a few years in between. But yeah, since I've uh, since I've been an, an adult, I've, I've pretty much. Home and away um, in Europe, went to uh, went to Greece, went to Aberdeen, <laughs> if you can get that. <laughs> um, so, yeah. Tropical trip to Aberdeen. Everyone loves that, don't they? Especially yeah, exactly. in July. What a better time to go than then. Um, obviously, this season's got off to a rough start. And we'll talk about that in a sec. But in general, like you say, you've been to every game home and away pretty much for the last decade or so. Would you say in your lifetime, this is the best period on the whole of being a Burnley fan? The best time to have supported Burnley in your lifetime? Well, yeah, up until this season. <laughs> But uh, no, 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 absolutely. Like the last uh, eight years, I think it is now, Daichi's been with us. It, it, stuff I could never dream of. You know, I, in, in my first season, we won the um, fourth, the old fourth division championship. And as a kid then, I was like, what, eight, nine, ten? I can't remember, but I was a kid. And, uh, you know, we were beating Doncaster and Rochdale. And I thought that was as good as it got winning the fourth division champion. I never thought Burnley uh, would be in the Premier League. So, you know, fast forward all these years later and uh, to have been in there, this, I think it's our fifth season now, um, and, you know, to get to Europe, like, come on, things like that. Like, it's just ridiculous. Uh, yeah. Even now, I still have to, you know, give myself a slap to believe it, to be honest. So um, 
yeah, positive. Everything Dykes has done for me, hundred percent positive. Can't can't knock him at all. He's He's brought the club into somewhere I thought it would never be, let's be honest. Mm, I'm sure Sean Dyche will be wanting to give a few people a slap around the club with the way <laughs> that the Clarets have started. Um, I'm not really talking about the players because I don't think it's their fault. Obviously, there's been lots of injuries. Um, we'll talk about James Tarkovsky in a second as well, who's decided that he doesn't want to sign a new contract. But in general, we've kind of got the gist here on the podcast that the supporters are angry at the board for a lack of investment. The only money you've spent was around a million quid on Dale Stevens, who couldn't even get into the Brighton team. So is that the major frustration from Claret's supporters that you haven't invested in the playing squad and it's come back to haunt you at the start of the season? It, it, it is definitely, but I, 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 I'm saying like Sean Dyche as I speak here, but I, I was about to say, I do think there's a balance to that. <laughs> it's totally something he would say. But um, yeah, obviously it is really frustrating. And, um, you know, we, we should, no one expects us to be, you know, spending 30, 40 million on players at Burnley. I, I think that's obviously unrealistic. And, and what the board has done up until this net, this point is fantastic. Um, but, you know, there's, there had to be this summer and the moment's gone now but for me and for a lot of uh, supporters there had to be a bit of a loosening of purse strings over the summer um, especially the way kind of we ended um, the season coming out of lockdown with you know with hardly we did really well actually results wise but with hardly any players and uh, not filling the bench with first team players we had like kids on the bench you know for that period so mm-hmm. I think that was a warning sign really that he had to you know spend some money or be given some money to spend and I think we all expected, you know, four or five new players to, to, to kind of come in. Um, and, and that just didn't materialise over the pre-season. And, and that is, yeah, obviously really frustrating. People like, you know, Matty Cash, for example, was was rumoured at one point, or Jaden Ball, yeah. who's gone to Sheffield United. That is the kind of level I think we, we should be competing in. Um, mm. No one's expecting us, you know, to be signing 40 million pen strikers. But, you know, I, I think for Burnley to sustain what we have, everyone knows that you can rest on your laurels in the Premier League. And although we've done amazingly well, you know, you, you can't just sit back. It's almost complacent that, oh, it's yeah. all right, we've got Deitch, that'll get us out of it. Well, he's not, he's not Paul Daniels, you know what I mean? He's not a magician. So, no. um, yeah, I think it's been unfair to, for Deitch. Um, but also, as I said, yeah, there is a, there is a balance to that because I think the board... They've managed Burnley really well. It's one of the best-run clubs in the Premier League, finance-wise. You, you know, we're not in any debt. We own our ground. All that stuff that supporters sometimes don't really care about, but they should because we don't yes. want the next Bury. You know what I mean? But yeah. um, and, and, and at, at any point, if we spend fifty million quid, it still doesn't guarantee we stay up. So that there is that kind of side of it as well, where I can see why they're being cautious um, and thinking about signings. Uh, Dyche also has made some signings that haven't worked and spent a bit of money, like Ben Gibson, for example. Not saying that's his mm. fault or Ben's fault or anything, but it doesn't guarantee anything spending money. So, but but there's got to be happy medium, and that is what's frustrating people. You spoke about the ownership just briefly there. Obviously, Mike Garlick's the chairman at the moment, and he's a Burnley supporter. And I think yeah. sometimes people take for granted how important it can be to have people with the best interest of the club at heart running things at the top. However, there's been murmurs of new investment into Burnley um, a couple of businessmen an Egyptian businessman uh, and a chap who was also involved in things at Charlton recently which for me as a Portsmouth fan every time I see kind of dodgy owners knocking around the skirts of any Premier League club I'm starting to feel a little bit anxious about it yeah. what are the kind of uh, viewpoints from the majority of Burnley fans about potential new investment in the club Again, mixed feelings, really. I think um, take Twitter aside because Twitter opinion is usually just, uh, you know, not exact truth. You just get an unbalanced opinion. But like speaking to people and stuff, I think people have mixed feelings, really. It's obvious that we need some investment and, and, and maybe Mike uh, Garlic has has potentially taken us as far as he can with his money. And that's no reflection on him. It's just, you know, we're owned by like local businessmen and, you know, Man City are owned by the world, for example, you know what I mean? Like a whole country, you know what I mean? So it, it, it's slightly different for us. Um, but um, it, it can go either way, can it? It can, it can go wrong. You know, look at our local rivals, Blackburn, you know, they had foreign investment and, and they've been down to League One recently. Um, mm. So it can go horribly wrong, but it can also go horribly right as well. And I, I do think we're at that. A, a crucial point, a point where we've not actually been um, um reign, let's say, because 
it, there does seem to be a few murmurings of, of discontent here there behind the scenes, even on the pitch. And I don't know until it's sorted if, if that'll all go away. But but for me, I, I just think Mike Garlic, I don't know the guy, obviously, but as you said, he's mm. a fan. So I don't think he's going to... A lot of supporters would say I'm talking rubbish, but I don't think he's going to put the club in jeopardy after what he's done to get us here. I think that'd just be mm. bizarre. So if he decides it the right, it's the right thing. He he, it's up to him. There's nothing we can do really, unfortunately, um, apart from trust him. Um, and yeah, mm. we can make the feelings known and, and protest if it gets to that point or whatever. But for me, I, I, I've just got to believe that whatever they're doing is, is right for the club and, and hope it is. Leighton, you mentioned, um, you know, Sean Dyche there and rumours of little murmurs of discontent and things like that. Um, does it feel like it's almost like the end of the road for, for Dyche if things stay as they are um, with, you know, not much money to spend. He's been there a long time. He's got them into Europe. Is there, a, is there ever a sense of like he's, he's done everything he can? Maybe he fancies another challenge if he's not going to get backed financially. Um. Yeah, it's a, it's a conversation that, that I have with other people on a daily basis and it goes around in my head on a daily basis because obviously we don't want to lose him. Um, but, you know, it, everyone is ambitious, right? And he's, he's proved he's an amazing, amazing manager with what he's got and, and, and he's young. Uh, it, it, you've got to expect that he wants to improve on what he's done here. And, and, and I think no right-minded supporter, if he got an offer from let's say an Everton or a, 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 you know, a top six club or even, you know, one of those below. I don't think anyone would begrudge him the move if, if we thought it was the right move for him. Yeah, I guess the real acid test is if he does leave just to go to another club and see how it goes. I suppose, you know, he's been at Burnley for so long. You don't really know what's going to happen when you go somewhere else, but you're absolutely right. He's done really well with what tools he's been given to work with. However, one of the big tools that he's had to work with is James Tarkovsky, who's been absolutely brilliant under Dyche's tutelage and ended up getting an England call-up, of course, in recent seasons. Jim's a big West Ham fan, um, and on the podcast during the transfer window, he was quite keen for West Ham to sign Tarkovsky. Leicester were also interested, and a report in The Telegraph yesterday, Leighton, said that James Tarkovsky isn't interested in signing a new contract at Turf Moor, which is another blow in what's been a pretty miserable season so far for you. Yeah, um, and it wasn't... It, you can't just put it down to a report either because it was actually an interview that he did with the Telegraph. So it's it's actually in quotation marks and it's his, it's from his mouth. So it's uh, it's, it's not great, to be honest. I mean, I, I read it um, and I, the, the feeling I've got from most Burnley fans, in my opinion, is that I, I don't actually disagree with what he's saying. Everything he says, I think, is, is fair enough. Um, you know, he's, he's of a certain age. Um, this might be his kind of last chance to get a, a move to a club, club and to win things. And, uh, and and I totally get that. My my only problem with it is I don't think it needed to be said. I don't understand why he said it. It, it didn't need to be said. Like, he could have just told the club that. He could have told his teammates that. I don't know why he's gone public with it. It's it's quite frustrating because mm. at, the, at the situation we're in, the last thing we need at the minute is, um, you know, more nonsense around us um, when we're trying to get out of uh, the relegation zone. But I do believe, he also said in that article, you know, whilst he's a Burnley player, he'll, he'll give 100% for the shirt. And, uh, he, and and I've no doubt that he will. He's, he's always been fantastic for us. He's, he's one of my favourite ever players and I can't speak highly enough of him, of him on the pitch and everything he's done for us. So I, I get what he's saying. And, um, and to be honest, <laughs> if I have to blame anyone, I blame Gareth Southgate for not picking him. Um, <laughs> he's certainly good enough for England. And I think it's, it's become obvious that whilst he's at Burnley, for whatever reason, you'll have to ask Gareth that, but he's not going to get an England team. And he, after the season he'd had last last season, I really thought um, those England matches before the new season kicked off, I think mm. he and all of us expected him to be in the squad. And that, for me, was the final nail in the coffin. And it was it was just a matter of time. And we all thought he was going to go, like you said, pre-season. Um, and, and, and by the same yeah. to that interview, he thought he was as well. Um, but actually, good on Burnley. Mm. Like, we, you know... we. Like they've always said, we don't need to sell players. We're not in a financial position where we need to. Um, but obviously, you also don't want a player who... Uh, Doesn't want to be there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it, to me, reading the interview, it didn't sound like he's going to um, kick... Throw the towel in. Yeah. yeah. Certainly not this season, anyway. So, um, <laughs> as long as he doesn't go in January, I, that's the other thing. Because, you know, if at the minute, obviously, we're in a bit of a tricky situation. Sure. Let's, uh, let's see what January brings and, and then they might decide to sell him and get more money. I don't know. But yeah, mm. he's, he's a great player. So whoever gets him, 
you know, he's getting a, a, an amazing centre half. But I've got to say, alongside Ben Mee, is amazing. Ben Mee does half of that job as well, and very underrated. So, um, yeah. just don't take them both. <laughs> yeah, well, Ben Mee coming back from injury, which would be which would be big for Burnley. Um, just finally, then Leighton, you are yeah. in the relegation zone. You're second from bottom. You've got two points so far. You do have a game in hand. You've played seven. Most of the teams around you have played eight. But your next fixtures after the international break: Crystal Palace, then it's City, Everton, Arsenal, Villa and Wolves before you travel to Leeds United on Boxing Day. That's your kind of run up to Christmas. You must be starting to feel slightly concerned because it's not like Burnley seven games in to have not picked up a win somewhere along the line. It isn't. And, and uh, there, you're right, there is a sense of worry. Um, it's not a sense of panic for me personally, though. Like, if you look over all Burnley seasons in the Premier League, um, even, the, even the, the season we finished seventh and we got into the Europa, if you look in the middle of that season, we actually went um, 11 games without a win from like the 16th of December right up until March, and we didn't win a game. Um, but because it was in the middle of the season, it, it's kind of hidden away. Um, <laughs> but obviously, we're at the start of the season, this season, and uh, yeah, we, we, we're second from bottom with two points, and it's not a great start. But uh, I, I do think, I think we'll get out of it. I think Sheffield United will get out of it, if I'm honest. I think... Um, I just think we need that first win, and that that is is obviously not helping confidence. And there's, mm. we haven't had a, half the players for the start of the season, but it's not an excuse. Um, and, and since the, everyone's come back, like Barnes and Ward up front together, not really working out so far. It has before, obviously, but it's not really working at the minute. Bit of a lack of creativity in the middle. Um, you know, Brian Hill's done amazing since he's come in. To be fair, he, in the lockdown period when we came back, he was amazing. So, but he's, he's obviously young. Dwight McNeil, an amazing talent, been great for us the last few seasons, not really kicked on this season so far. So there's a lot of things that still could slide into place. Sean Dykes is the main part of it, obviously. I, I think, you know, the experience he's got and his know-how, he'll, he'll get us firing again. But yeah, it, it, it's a worry, but it's not panic. We do need that first win. Um, mm. And, you know, the next game is Palace. That's not easy. Obviously, I think they're sixth and seventh at the minute and, and, and a tr- tricky side, especially away from home with the, the pace and stuff. They've got uh, Man City away. We always lose that 5-0, so that's a write-off already. <laughs> sure. like, it's, it's, it's the one match I just never, you know, never just roll my eyes at because I'm just like, I'm punishing myself watching this. Um, and then after that, we'll see. But I, I do think we've got enough, even with the th- threadbare squad, we've got to to get out of it. I think we'll be in the scrap, 100%. Mm. But Burnley probably, a lot of people would say, should be in the scrap. So, um <sighs> The aim for us at this stage, I think, is to finish 17th, to be honest. And uh, mm. uh, that that's a good season, normally by Burnley. Our standards have been raised over previous, you know, previous <laughs> months. But if, you, if you'd have said that to me, uh, you know, all those years ago, I'd have took it. So um, mm. but I, I think we've got enough quality um, to, to to just about do it. But it's, it's, it's still only, what is it, seven or eight games in? So it's... Um, and also, it annoys me that we didn't play that first match against Man United because the way they've been playing, if that had been the first match as it should have been, <laughs> we, we might, might be a little bit higher up. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Leighton, it's been great to chat to you, mate. Fascinating to get an insight from a Burnley supporter's perspective. Where can people find more from you if they're a Claret listening into the podcast and they want to kind of get in touch? Oh, I'm on um, I'm on Twitter at uh, Leighton B, L-E-Y-T-O-N-B. Perfect. Leighton, great to chat to you, mate. Best of luck for the season and take care. Nice one. Thanks, Matt. Right, that's it for today's Football Social Daily. Thanks very much to Leighton. Cheers to Marley. Thanks, Marley. Cheers, guys. I've got my Serbia shirt on ready for tonight. (laughs) Slow down, slow down. (laughs) Cheers to JP as well. Best of luck for Scotland as well, JP. Thank you, mate. And uh, Marley, I would swear. See you later. (laughs) (laughs) Football Social Daily from Sports Social. Find us on Twitter at The Sports Social.